we've been talking about prayer, and we're going to continue on that. And anytime you go to develop in something that maybe you've done for a long time, it's different if you're just a, a newbie at anything, because everything's new and fresh, and you're developing all the time. But anything you've done for a long time, it doesn't matter if it's your job or working out or, or prayer that we're going to focus on today. If you've done that for a long time, and you want to grow in it, you have to think some different thoughts. You have to think differently. You have to look at things differently. Now, I'm not saying outside of Scripture or the truth of God's Word, but we need to think things differently, see things differently, have kind of fresh eyes. And so that's been one of my goals this year, to have kind of a fresh take on prayer and develop my prayer life. And so I want to encourage you to do that as well. So we've been looking at things to develop our prayer life, to look at things differently. And I'm often telling people uh, in preaching here that we should uh, practice the principles and virtues and teachings of Jesus. If we call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, then we should start putting into practice the things that Jesus teaches us. And when we put things into practice, little by little, a lot of times you don't even notice it, but little by little as you practice something, you get better at it and better at it and better at it. Now, sometimes the progress seems very slow, and so you don't notice it. But it's kind of like the children. If you've been a parent and had children raised in your home, you notice that they, they're growing in front of you all the time. And you know they're growing. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't shock you, but you don't see it because it happens so slowly in front of you day after day as maybe somebody who hasn't seen them for two years, right? They see your kid. They haven't seen them for two years. Oh, my goodness, look, look how much they grew. And you think, yeah, I guess they really did. If you're growing like that spiritually, if you're applying the Word of God, even though you may not notice it so much, you are growing. And so I want to encourage you to continue putting into practice. You put into practice over and over and over, and gradually anything you put into practice, you get better at. Now, there's a guy named Jared Alcantara. He's a, um, a professor at a Christian college, and I was reading some of his stuff a week or two ago. And he was talking about how all practice is not created equal, that there are some practices that are very deliberate, and they help us grow. So all practice isn't created equal. So he said we need to learn to practice differently. We need to put into practice things in a different manner. By the way, again, anything you've done over and over and over, if you just keep doing the same thing over and over, you'll probably stay at just that proficiency level. If if you're a fitness person, you've found out that you can do things and plateau. And you may say, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing harder. But you still plateau. Something needs to be done differently. Something needs to shock your body in a positive way to produce growth. Same way about spiritual things, we need to do things differently. So he was talking about how in any profession, he used doctors. He said, there's a doctor, say, they've been at their practice for 20 years. But they may not be as far along as somebody that's been at the practice for five years. Why? He said, because they developed a certain proficiency, maybe year three or four, and they just kept doing that over and over and over and over and over, and they didn't really grow. But somebody may be further along five years into it because they have tried new things, practiced new things, are constantly learning, developing, and doing things differently. So the bottom line to all the study was that it really, we don't just need to try harder, we need to try differently. And so maybe you think, I'm just going to pray harder. Well, let's pray differently. Let's see how the scripture encourages us to pray and how to look at things. And so we're going to do that. We're going to keep learning. And we've learned some things, I hope. We've learned uh, the Lord's Prayer. That was something that was... uh, a revelation to me is I really looked at the Lord's Prayer. Almost all of the Lord's Prayer is asking. Almost all of the Lord's Prayer is making a request. So prayer is primarily asking, not entirely, but primarily. It's communicating with God and, and making requests. And we learned that God is everywhere. He's ever-present 
for believers. He's a very present help in time of need. So when we pray, because if you're like me, you've surely thought this before. Man, I hope I pray just right because I've got to get my prayer. It's got to make it to God. You know what I mean? And so it's got to make it somewhere through the cosmos and it has to land up there at the home where God lives, wherever that is. And I hope that it made it. But when we start looking about what Jesus said, our Father who art in the heavens, that's the best translation for that, our Father who is ever-present, he's everywhere, then we have to think, okay, my prayers don't have to land at headquarters. He's present, he's here. And so that should encourage our prayer life. God hears and answers our prayers. Now, we do know this, just because he hears the prayer doesn't mean that he grants all of our requests, which, quite frankly, I'm serious about this, would be very dangerous for us. It really would. If God answered every prayer we prayed, that'd be very dangerous. I'm not joking about that. It's, it's, uh, so God sees the big picture, and, and I, I don't get it either. You know, I've, I've prayed some prayers that I just knew were spot on and should have been answered right the way I wanted them answered, on the timeline I wanted them answered on, in the way I wanted them answered, and somehow it all escaped God. He didn't see it quite the way I did. So I, I don't understand why all that happens, but... He is bigger, smarter, brighter than we are, and so we need to make sure that we are bringing our request to him, but we do want to acknowledge that he has the ultimate say in everything. Then we saw that Jesus had a method for dealing with things. Uh, we looked at asking versus condemning last week. Now, most of the time, the way we approach people and subjects is out of a good heart. We have... Loved ones, don't we? And friends and family and classmates and co-workers and neighbors whom we love and we're seeing their self-destructive behaviors causing their life to go down the drain, right? Anybody got some people in their lives that are like that? And so you want, out of a good heart, you want what's best for them. Jesus wants what's best for them. He said, I have come that you might have and enjoy life to the fullest measure. So you're seeing their self-destructive habits causing their life to crash and burn. And so we try everything, don't we, to, to help them. We try get mad at them. We try, uh, if you got children, you've, you've done a, a million mini lectures. You know how you give those mini lectures to those kids. And, and, and then if that doesn't work, we'll try to guilt them or shame them or, or do what or condemn them or judge them, whatever. Now, at the bottom of it, we usually are very passionate about wanting to correct their lives for their good, as well as it, it's good for our hearts because we love these people passionately. But you might have noticed that the method doesn't work. So Jesus comes on the scene and says, condemnation isn't a good method. It doesn't work. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. The scripture says, who's going to condemn? Jesus? No, not Jesus. He's not condemning. He's actually making intercession for us. So instead of smashing us down, he's lifting us up. To intercede means to pray on behalf of another person, to ask for something on behalf of another. Jesus is interceding for us. So we see that what we should do instead of condemn, judge, shame, belittle, do whatever, even if our best intentions, is we have to pray. And so Jesus wraps up that teaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount by saying, here's a new way to think of things. First of all, I want you to ask and seek and knock with God. Ask God for those that you love. And ask on their behalf. Seek on their behalf. Knock on God's door on their behalf. And when the time is right, we ask of them. We make requests of them. We can say, hey, are you ready to serve Jesus? Are you ready to lay aside anger or rage or addictions or sin or immorality or ungodliness or whatever? Are you ready to lay that aside? Brokenness, unforgiveness, pain, shame. Are you ready to lay that aside and go forward with Jesus? And they may say no, but 
Jesus always made the request, and people got to make the decision that they wanted to. And so we pray first to God, and when the time is right, we ask those around us that we love if they're ready to go after God. So we're going to talk about some deliberate practice today, some things to put into practice in our lives. We're going to deal with a subject that is very controversial. Now, the controversies I've heard aren't mean-spirited, but there's brilliant people on both sides of this. But we're going to deal with it today, and I want to encourage you to think of the scriptures, think it through, make a decision, decide where you, what you believe on this, and the, what we're going to address today is a question, and uh, it's actually the title of, of my message today, prayer, can we change God's mind? Prayer, can we change God's mind? Now, the Greek philosophers had all kinds of ideas about God, and um, Aristotle believed that God was an immovable mover. In other words, now he didn't think of God as we thought of God, but he thought God put things in motion, but he himself can't be moved. I mean, he's going to win the staring contest. He's not going to budge. He's not going to flinch. He's gonna, he doesn't move. Uh, and so he, just, he puts things in motion, but he can't be persuaded or moved. Now, Plato believed that actually asking the gods to do something on your behalf was beneath them. I mean, after all, you know, the gods have this universe to run, and how brazen of us to dare ask them to do something for us mere mortals. Aren't you glad we don't serve the Greek gods? The Greek gods, little g, we serve the capital G God of all the universe. Because our God is so capable. Our God is so big. Our God has such unlimited resources that he can actually keep our solar system all going, the Milky Way galaxy in place, all the other galaxies. He can do all that and still have plenty of leftover ability. He can have so much leftover ability that his eye is on every sparrow after he keeps the universe running. And his heart and his mind is attuned to our hearts and minds, every person on planet Earth, because our God isn't a little G God. He is the God of the universe. And I thank God we serve a God who has such unlimited capacity that he can keep everything in order. I mean, we don't go to him with a prayer request and him go, guys, do you not understand? I'm trying to run the universe. Would you please quit asking me for a good parking spot? You know, I'm trying to run the universe here. You know, stop it. Stop it. So, I I don't mind asking for a good parking spot. I don't always get it, uh, but I don't mind asking. I, I have some people will say, Like, if anything goes right in my life, I blame God. Why not? You know, I'll say, oh my gosh, there's a great parking spot, right? We wanted it. Now I've had people say, well, atheists get great parking spots. That's fine. They can blame whoever they want to. Actually, they don't have anybody to blame. I just, thank you, God. Thank you, God. One time, I was, um, you know, I've really been watching my eating, and I had, uh, you ever saw a Krispy Kreme? And uh, Krispy Kreme sometimes will have a sign that goes up that, like, they're, they're hot, they're fresh, they're ready to go. And so I thought, you know what, I, I, I think I've eaten well enough that I should have one of those. And so I, I said, Lord, if you provide a parking spot right in front of the Krispy Kreme, then I will know that this is a sign that I'm supposed to have one. And you know what? He did. Seriously, seventh time around, there was a spot right there 
right there in front. And uh, that was my sign from God. So prayer, can, can we change God's mind? Nothing's really too big for God or too little for God. In fact, God, that's one of the, I believe one of the ploys of the devil is that you think that's too big or it's too little. Nothing's too big or nothing's too little. Now, I do want to say this. When we come to the end of the message today, I don't want you to think that God is our little errand boy. You know, it's going to run around, make sure he does everything for us, and then he dashes back and say, are you all happy? And he's not a genie in, in Aladdin's lamp. He's, he's not a cosmic butler for us. I get that, and I'm not even trying to suggest that. But nothing's too big or too small for God. And sometimes we, it's amazing how the pendulum swings one way or the other. You know, we either, you know, are asking for everything for us or we won't ask anything for us because something's either always too big or too little, but nothing's too big or too little for God. Can God change his mind? I I think when we examine a topic like this, we need to go to Scripture. The Bible says that that the Word of God, now I get it, those who, who say it's really great that you use the Bible to prove the Bible, but I do. Because I believe the Bible, I believe the scriptures are inspired by God. And so the scriptures tell us that all scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, exhaled by God. Uh, Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Timothy tells us that, Paul told Timothy, all scripture is profitable, it's breathed by God. And so I I believe that. So I want to figure out about God by seeing what God says about God. One of the best ways you can learn about somebody is to read an autobiography, except we have a problem as human beings because we always want to paint ourselves out in the best light. So our autobiography of our own life might not include a lot of things that we don't want people to know, and it might kind of exaggerate things that make us look glorious. But see, God's not like that. I, I want to say this respectfully, but God is not worried about what you or I think about him. I just want you to know that. There was a time period in my life where I would see things in life I couldn't understand, and, and I would try to make God look good in the situation. And finally, I said, hey, you're, you're, you're big. I, I don't feel like I have to, you know, make excuses for you or even try to support you in this stuff. You're God. You can take it. And when people exaggerate or when people don't tell the truth, I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this. I've really only met two people who just lied to lie. I don't know if you, if you have anybody like that in your life. They're very interesting people, that they'll just go out of their way to lie just to lie. So finally, I called one guy on, and I said, you know, dude, I said, you just, you lie all the time. Unnecessarily, you know what I mean? Just unnecessarily. And so he said, well, I, I don't, but I do exaggerate. And I said, no, let's, let's use the right word. You lie. You lie. And by the way, he knew he did. He wasn't even that good at it and uh, didn't kill our relationship because I think he realized, yeah, probably everybody does know I'm lying. But God doesn't lie. People lie for primarily two reasons unless they're just habitual liars. They lie to gain an advantage. Maybe they want to rip you off or lie to you to take advantage of you. Or it's to, uh, in fear of punishment. And God has neither one. He doesn't fear punishment from me or you. He doesn't, he doesn't need to take advantage of us. So when we read the scriptures, we're getting a real understanding of how God is and how he works and how he does things. In fact, I've often said that the Bible, to me, is, is evidence of God's truthful existence. Because I can tell you, there's a bunch of messed up people in the Bible. A bunch of messed up God followers in the Bible. If I was going to make up a book, it wouldn't be this one. 
I mean, King David would be flawless. He wouldn't be the King David in here. You know, all my, all my guys would be heroes. All my gals would be heroes. Everything would work out perfectly. Everything would be wonderful. Uh, but God tells the whole story, you know, warts and all in Scripture. So we want to look at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about prayer? Can we change God's mind? So we're going to look at this guy who's a wonderful intercessor, probably one of the biggest stories on this topic, although there are several, but we won't go into all of them. We're going to look at Moses today. Moses was um, an intercessor. An intercessor, by the way, if that's an unfamiliar term to you, is somebody who prays on behalf of another. And so we have a scenario, a situation that's come up. The children of Israel, the timeline's kind of difficult to determine for sure. They've either been 90 days, they've either been about three months or four months out of Egypt. So we do understand it isn't like four decades, okay? We're talking three to four months. Remember, they were in Egypt. If, you, if you've never seen the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or one of those shows, you need to watch that. It gives you a good, you know, illustration of what's going on. The most powerful kingdom on planet Earth had the children of Israel uh, as slaves. And God moves with a mighty hand. He actually deals with every single false god in Egypt. And he releases God's people get released by a mighty hand, a move of God. They go through the Red Sea. You know the story. They're about three to four months into this ordeal where they get to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses is going to receive the Ten Commandments. Okay? Now Moses goes up there on the mountain, and I suppose they think he's going to be there for two or three days, but he's up there for 40 days. So they get nervous, and they say, my goodness, this, what's up with this Moses guy? We don't really know him that well anyway. You know, he's probably dead. And so they form... A, an idol and it's a golden calf anybody remember the story there's the golden calf I, I never, these are things that confuse me too um, Aaron Moses' right hand man makes the golden calf and read the story for you Moses challenges Aaron and said what did you do and read the story this is what he says I, I threw in a bunch of gold and this is what came out and I thought, now, that, I don't understand why that got some people killed, but not Aaron, I'm not sure. But this is what happened. And the people said, here is the God that delivered us from Egypt. What? A golden calf? Couldn't you design something better than that? I mean, who wants to say, yeah, this, this bovine actually delivered us from Egypt. And the Bible says that they began to sin and party. They gave themselves up for pagan revelry, I think is what one translation says, which really means sinful, you know, awful partying. And God has just given Moses the Ten Commandments, and then God gets angry. And he says, this is my paraphrase, my goodness, these people that I just delivered from Egypt with a mighty hand are down there sinning like crazy. And they've already got in idolatry, and they're claiming that this cow rescued them from Egypt. And God says to Moses, stand aside. I'm going to destroy these people, and I'm going to raise up a new nation out of you. Good thing Moses was an intercessor, because if I was Moses, I would have said, this sounds like a great plan to me. You know, let me step aside, you know, take care of these people. But Moses steps between the people and God and says, well, we're going to pick up on the story. He says in Exodus 32, 11 through 14, but Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, 
why are you so angry? I, I love his style. He's a great intercessor. He's a great, he would be like the perfect, you know, hostage negotiator, you know, to get, you know, those guys you call in when there's a tight situation. He says, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? So he's saying, these are your people. These are your people. This was your plan. You delivered them with a strong hand. Why are you so angry? And then he goes on to another thing. And he says, Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven. I will give them all the land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. Verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. It's an interesting thing, in a second we'll talk about why, why we have a problem with that. But I want you to see Moses' arguments. Don't forget, you, God, delivered your people, and this is your program, it's your plan. And then he said, your reputation's on the line. Think of what the Egyptians will say. Think about what all the pagans will say. Think about that. In other parts of the Bible, it says one of the other arguments was that they, people will say that you brought these people out of Egypt, but you didn't have the ability to sustain them. So since you couldn't take care of them, you decided you just had to kill them. And so they will say you're an evil God who wanted to slaughter them. And you made some promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you need to keep. And I want to encourage you to do that, God. And the promise was they would continue to grow and grow and grow in population. And Moses is actually telling them, like let's say there's a million. I mean, there's probably at least a million Israelites at this point. When you eliminate a million Israelites, your plan's going backwards, God. You're supposed to, it took hundreds of years. They were in Egypt over 400 years. They're, it took hundreds of years to get here. You're going to go back to zero. Now, I want to say this. Everything God was getting ready to do would not have violated any promise that he had made. Well, he would have been starting over with Moses, but Moses was a descendant of Abraham. He would have still been raising up people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It might have taken another 400 years, 500 years, 1,000 years. That's no big deal to God. But... It says he changed his mind. Now, the New Living Translation we just read out says God changed his mind. Most of the modern ones say that. The King James says God repented. Now, that's a problem for a lot of people because the word repentance to most of us means to say you're sorry for your sin. That's not what repentance means. We studied that a few months ago, remember? Repentance means to change your mind or to think differently after. That's the most literal translation of repentance, is information has come, and you now think differently. So repentance is actually a great word, but it conjures up wrong things in our mind. And the NIV thing says he relented, which means he conceded or he gave in. And so that can be a problem for us when we think about God. How does a God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, change his mind? I mean, we look at this story, and we can't picture God saying, wow, Moses, those are some really great thoughts I had not thought of. 
I mean, I am so thankful that you're here. I about made the biggest blunder of my life. Thank God you're here. I guess he would say, thank me, you're here, that you actually saw this in a light that I didn't see it in because I just about made a huge blunder. Well, that doesn't make sense to us. So full disclosure is I'm not sure we always understand everything about God. There was an old preacher, I wish I could remember which one it was from bygone years, who said, us trying to understand God is like a worm trying to understand man. There's just such a gap of our ability to understand that. So we, we're trying, and I'm wired up that way. I want to figure it out, understand it, dissect it, look at it, you know, make it all linear and lined up. I mean, I'm wired up that way. So if you're wired up that way, join the club. But I found out God's bigger than my intellect. And aren't you thankful, seriously, that God's bigger than us? But we get glimpses in and we get some understanding about God. There's another thing, too. There might have been a thousand ways... God could have continued his process because his thinking is so unlimited, he doesn't ever run out of options. I struggled with this because I would hear things, and I probably even preached it at times, God had to do it this way. And then I thought one day, I thought, no, he didn't. I mean, as long as it didn't violate his, his character or his word, he's got a thousand creative ways to do stuff. And so what he was proposing to do was a viable option but Moses said, stick with plan number one, God. So in one sense, God just went back to his plan. But he did. The scripture says he relented, repented, or changed his mind. So, another interesting story found in 2 Kings 20. It's about a good, a godly king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah has been sick. He's spending most of his time in bed. He doesn't have a lot of energy to get out and about. Um, the prophet Isaiah shows up to Hezekiah. Now, how would you like to get a prophet prophecy like this most of the time you know when somebody gives you a prophetic word something beautiful right you know oh man I just feel like the Lord showed me that you're going to be this or this is going to be wonderful or yada yada and all this stuff well that's not the way they always prophesied in the Old Testament so Isaiah shows up to Hezekiah and says hey I got a word from the Lord for you Hezekiah says oh probably say this in scripture you probably think oh good I'm getting a word from the Lord what is it Isaiah what's the word from the Lord here's the word from the Lord you're going to die that's the word from the Lord. Yeah, the illness that you have will be unto death and you will die. But get your house in order and you've got to figure a king's got some things to put in line before he dies, you know, his successor and how things are going to work and what's going to go on. So God said, I'm just giving you a heads up, you're going to die. And so get your house in order. Well, Isaiah walks away and he's heading out and Hezekiah has already begun to pray. He's already begun to pray. And when he prays, if you read the story in, in 2 Kings 20, he's pleading this case. Oh, Lord, you know how I've served you upright and of, of sincere heart. And so he's talking about all his heart and all that he's done for God and for the kingdom of God. And, and he breaks down and cries. And it's just an interesting story because Isaiah, it says he's not even out of the palatial grounds yet. And he's about halfway through the courtyard when all of a sudden God speaks to him and says, Stop, Isaiah turn around and go back and tell, tell Hezekiah this. Now, it's interesting because he doesn't say, oh, Isaiah, go back and turn around because you got it wrong. That really wasn't what I said. That was what God said. He said, turn around and go back to Hezekiah and tell him this. I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. And I'm adding 15 years to your life. Isn't that interesting? 2 Kings 24 through 6. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, the message came to him from the Lord. 
Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. And three days from now, you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord. He had been bedridden, basically. And I will add 15 years to your life. God changed his mind. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And then later, not too much later, just a few minutes later, he sent him back and said, give him this word. Let's think about it. Is God's response to our prayers simply a pretense? Is it make-believe? Is God just pretending to answer our prayers when he's only doing what he intended to do anyway, regardless of whether we prayed? Is prayer and answering prayer just a dog and pony show that, you know, we all get involved in and we say what we're going to say in prayer, but God does whatever he wants anyway? See, this idea actually uh, haunts a lot of sincere believers when it comes to the concept of prayer, because if you believe that, then it's very emotionally and mentally hard to get invested in prayer. I mean, think about this. If I said to you today, your prayers really don't matter. You can't move God. You can't influence God. God will never change his mind. He will only do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. But now, let's all go out and pray. You go, why? What's the use? I know some people who are in that situation because they have prayed, and they've prayed about some big things, and they didn't get the answers that they thought. And they said, apparently God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, so why pray? So is it just all a show? I don't believe so. God does not call us to engage in prayer and waste our time and energy in the effort of praying just so he'll do whatever he wants to anyway. That is not the biblical concept of prayer. So what do these interactions with Moses and Hezekiah tell us? I believe they tell us that we can prevail with God in prayer. We can move the heart of God in prayer. I believe that's what the scriptures are teaching us. I have lots of other illustrations, but probably didn't want the message to go on and on and on and on. But there were several things Jesus was not going to do that when somebody pressed him, he did. And there were things that wasn't on his radar that when people stepped up in faith, happened for them. I mean, remember this, just one story. Whoa, he's walking, who, who touched me? Who, who, who touched me? It wasn't on Jesus' agenda from we see from Scripture that, hey, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to heal somebody that has an issue of blood who doesn't stop bleeding. And she's been to many doctors for many years. She's spent everything she has and she's not getting better. She's getting worse. Apparently, that was not on his to-do list that day, but somebody pulled something from Jesus that wasn't on the to-do list. So, I do want to know that there's no magical words to say. I do want to know that God may or may not grant our requests. But either way, it's for good reason. And this is how relationships work. In relationships, when we have a good relationship, I can plead my case before you, and you will hopefully listen if we're in a good relationship. And at the end of it, you may still say no. Or you may say yes, but it will be for good reason relationship opens that door for us to do that. Now, I love how Dallas Willard said it, and he's influenced me a lot in prayer. Forgive me, I think I'll just read it so it's, I don't mess it up. Dallas Willard said, God is great enough that he can 
conduct his affairs in this way. In other words, he can change his mind. His nature, identity, and overarching purposes are no doubt unchanging. Did you hear that? His nature, his identity, his overarching purposes are no doubt unchanging. But his intentions with regard to many particular matters that concern individual human beings are not. This does not diminish him far from it. See, the Greeks thought that would diminish God. He's an immovable mover, and it's rude to ask him to do something for you. Far from it. He would be a lesser God if he could not change his intentions when he thinks it's appropriate. And if he chooses to change his intentions when he thinks it is appropriate and deals with humanity that way, that is just fine. Let me throw you in another set of scriptures. Now, this is not one about changing God's mind, but this is about kind of like the one with the issue of blood, something that may not have been on God's agenda, but he's telling us how to get something from God. In James chapter 4, James is the brother of Jesus. He writes these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have. We all do that, right? There's, you sure there's something you want right now that you don't have, isn't there? I show pictures to Darlene of all kinds of stuff I want that I don't have. Just thinking maybe it might sink in there. At Christmas time, by the way, I don't want people to be confused. I send photos and links to what I want for Christmas. That's the gospel truth. I don't want to waste time taking something back. I don't want you to spend twice the money on something I don't want. Here it is. Here's the link to it. You know, in case you forgot my name and address, kids, it's right here. Here's, here's what it is. So there's all, always things we don't have that we want. And that doesn't make you a bad person. I mean, it can go to an extreme, but it doesn't make you bad. So it says, you want what you don't have, verse 2, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you, what's the rest of that? You don't ask God for it. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. I don't want you to miss that. Now, there's all kinds of things we could teach on this topic, but my focus is prayer. There are things we want, but we don't get. Why? Because we don't ask God for it. Simple logic. Now, it does say, and when we do ask It says, and even when you ask, verse 3, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only only what will give you pleasure. Now, that word there is is a Greek word that means sinful pleasure. It means you're totally self-absorbed in pleasure, like hedonism. You're just totally, it's all about you being pleased and and enjoying life, and it's all about you. Uh, There's nothing wrong with pleasure, because the Bible says, I think it's Psalm 1611, that you show me the way of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There's nothing wrong with pleasures, but there's a difference between sinful pleasure and wholesome, you know, godly pleasure. And so here it says, all you want to do is get, have sinful pleasure. For instance, let's say you need a car. There's nothing wrong with asking God for a car. But if you say, I want this very specific car, first of all, I also don't think it's wrong being specific with God either. But if your motive is, 
I want that car because when I drive into school or work, I want everyone to know that I'm better than they are. You see what just happened there? You transitioned out of having a need that you just now really want for your own sinful pleasure. And God says, that's not the motive I want you to have. So, we need to ask God. The scripture implies, I'm very serious about this, and, and again, I know it can be taken too far. I know there's, again, the pendulum swings so far sometimes that we can hear the say, oh, now I'm all excited. All I'm going to ask is for me, myself, and mine, and I, 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 and me, 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 and I want, I want, I want, and that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. But it appears to me from the scripture, James is saying, the brother of Jesus, James is saying, hey, you know what? There's this warehouse full of stuff out there. Now, this is an illustration. I don't think there's a literal warehouse, but there's a warehouse of stuff out there, and some of the stuff you want, and it's not really on God's specific agenda to give it to you, but if you want some of it, you need to ask God for it. But instead of asking God, you decide, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to fight, I'm going to quarrel, I'm going to scheme, I'm going to, I'm going to lie, I'm going to manipulate, I'll even kill if I have to, and steal to get it. And God says, now why take the world's way? Ask me. God says, ask me. Ask me for it. There was something one day, I was driving down the road, I was actually driving out here to the church, and I, just something crossed my mind that I thought, boy, I'd really like to have that. And, and immediately when I thought that, a thought came across my mind that I believe was the Lord. And the thought was this, ask me for it. Now, I probably go overboard being cautious because I've heard so many people manipulate people by saying, well, the Lord said, or God said, and they put a lot of words in God's mouth, which I think is wrong. So I'm very careful about saying that, but I felt like that was the Lord. Now, it was interesting because what comes next sounds very noble, and I think my heart was right, but I want, when we get to the end, I want you to see a problem with this. I thought to myself, how could I ask you for that? And I, I just began to tell the Lord, I enjoy life at a level that I never dreamed I ever would. I have so many blessings from your hand, so much good stuff. Life is so wonderful. There's, I could not ask you for that. It wasn't like a need. I, I, I can't ask you for that. Then a few days later, I was thinking about that, and I thought, hold it. If that was the Lord, I don't think we have any good excuses to disobey God, even if they're noble-sounding. So I asked God for it. And just for the record, I don't have it yet but there will be a link to it sent to every one of you uh, so you can see the actual picture, photo, and everything. No, no, there won't be. In fact, I've never said what it was to people because I, I, I hate that manipulating thing, you know, you know, you know how sometimes you, you get on Facebook and somebody has posted there, wow, I just uh, really need this particular thing to go with my outfit. You know, if you could just get me this necklace and this, okay. No, no none of you have ever done that. Sometimes they're legitimate, sometimes they're not. So I want to say, hold it, if God's going to give that to me, and that was the Lord, I don't want to manipulate it. We'll just see if that was the Lord or not. And you know what I've decided? I love Jesus so much. If I never get that, it just really won't matter. But I know something about the heart of God. We don't get because we don't ask. There's nothing wrong with asking. In fact, I want to pause for a second because I made the statement about Facebook. There is a time that relationships allow you to ask for something from someone. I don't know if you know Samuel Doe who would come here. He's a missionary from Africa. Samuel had no problem with that. He would walk in, he'd look around, 
he saw like a soundboard sitting over there. And it wasn't going to be used. And it wasn't ever going to be used. Samuel, uh, you using that brother? Uh, no, we're not. May I have that brother? Yeah, you can. Okay. Thank you, brother. It'd scope around. <laughs> Anything else? You're using this chair, brother. Well, not right now, but I'm planning on it. Okay. <laughs> he, was, he, he knew this because it's a spiritual principle, and it's okay in relationship to say, because you get not because you ask not sometimes, to ask. And so I don't know how much stuff Samuel found, which is fine with us because it's collected dust in a closet never going to be used anyway. Okay, go ahead. Take it, take it, take it. So there's nothing wrong with asking in relationships and getting help from people. I, I want to make sure I make that plain. But... God gives us a pattern, and we looked at it last week. We are to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. We ask, our asking causes us to get something that, according to Scripture, we aren't going to get if we don't ask. Is that not what the Bible says? And if you'll seek, you're going to find something you would not have found if you didn't seek. And if you knock, something will be open. A door will be open to you that would not have been opened if you didn't knock. That's what Jesus said. It's the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Ask, seek, and knock. Why is he telling us to ask, seek, and knock? Because our asking, our seeking, our knocking moves the hand and heart of God. It moves the hand and heart of God. So ask. Oh, man, this, the illustration just come, and I know you don't want me to keep going on and on, but uh, was, it, was it Hannah? Was that her name who wanted a child? And she's on the steps, and she's praying. She's whispering just a light prayer, and Eli thinks she's drunk and says, you know, drunk woman, head on home. Well, I'm not drunk. And so she says, I want a child. And guess what? She gets a child. Ask, seek, knock. I also want to encourage you that those those words there what's called um, present progressives it's not one and done it's ask and keep asking seek and keep seeking knock and keep knocking so it is my opinion that prayer is not smoke and mirrors that God is not pretending to answer our prayers and making a big show of things that he actually is hearing our prayers and answering our prayers do I believe there are divine things of God that are fixed in stone that our prayers won't move? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. But I believe there's a whole lot that's not. Jesus is coming again. I don't care how you pray or what we say, he's coming again. There are things that will happen because God has said they're going to happen. But I believe to think otherwise is a big hindrance to prayer. How can I pray in faith if God doesn't really listen to my prayers in that kind of way? How can I pray with passion? How can I pray with hope? How can I pray with expectancy? If really God's just going to do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, to whom he wants to do it, regardless of what I say in prayer. And my prayers have no capacity to move him. Our prayers do. Now, I know what my friends on the other side of the aisle would say. Here's, Tracy, why you should pray. Even though your prayers won't move God even though your prayers won't make a difference, even though your prayers, God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. You should pray because God tells us to pray. I get that. If God said to me, listen, Tracy, I'm telling you to pray, 
but your prayers aren't going to make any difference, but pray anyway, I think we should say, yes, sir. But I don't see that the biblical pattern of prayer, that our prayers really do move the heart and move the hand of God. There's so much evidence pointing towards this. So here's our assignment. I want to reignite your faith in prayer. I want you to leave here today saying, oh my goodness, I believe my prayers can move the heart and hand of God. I believe that things, there are lots of things in this world that aren't fixed. Apparently there's some things that I could get if I would pray. I was in a little Methodist church in Hartsville, Indiana. Anybody heard of the big city of Hartsville? Okay, I was in Hartsville. I don't like to brag about all the places I've been, but I was there preaching one day. And I was, afterwards I said I would pray with people. And so somebody came up to me and said, I'm, I'm really conflicted here because I, I've been employed for a long time. And I need a job. I said, well, let's pray and ask God to give you a job. <sighs> Can I ask God to do something for me personally like that? I mean, shouldn't I just be praying for other people? And I said, please pray for other people, but you can pray for a job. We're going to pray and believe for a job. And this person had been unemployed for a long time, was employed within a week. You don't get because you don't ask God. So Satan will do anything to keep you from praying. Again, he'll either say, oh, that prayer is too little to bother God with, like God's frazzled or something. My grandmother had a heart issue. I was probably a teenager. My parents, uh, my mother and grandmother were beauticians to a beauty shop connected to our house. Well, I come downstairs from our upstairs in the living room. My grandmother's there. looks like she's about to die from a heart attack. And I said, I'm going to go get mom. She said, oh, don't bother mom. Uh, I don't know if you know people like that. Don't bother mom. Well, I said, I think she'd rather be bothered than come in here and find you dead. And said, no, don't. she's got heads of hair she's out there doing. Don't bother her. And I said, well, let me pray for you. And she said, oh, don't, don't pray for me. There's people in a lot worse situations than I am. Now, I love her heart, but I had to tell her, I said, Grandma, I get it. If God said, I only got one prayer I'm going to answer today, and I could answer it for a grandmother who's struggling with a heart issue, or I could save a little baby in Riley Hospital, I get it. Okay, you can have the prayer baby in Riley Hospital. But God doesn't just have one, and so... We've got to be careful. We have come up with all kinds of reasons not to pray and not to ask God. And again, don't swing your pendulum so far. Oh, my goodness. Ooh, I can get all kinds of stuff. Again, he's not your errand boy. He's not a genie in a lamp. He's the God of all the universe, but he is a good father. I'll say this, and we'll, we'll look at these other couple points. I have gone out of my way, and so has Darlene, many, many times, just to do something for our kids because we love them. Period. Oh, but they were really good. They might not have been that day we did it for them. I don't know. I, I love our kids, but, you know, kids are kids, and you were a kid too, don't forget. And uh, sometimes you just do things just because you love them. We have found joy in many, many occasions by simply looking at the joy on their faces as they got something that they wanted, that we provided for them, that they didn't earn or necessarily deserve. And if you being evil, this is what Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who love him? He is a good Father. He does not mind. I think sometimes he gives you something just to see the joy on your face for receiving that gift. 
So I want to reignite, reignite our faith in prayer. I want us to pray boldly, not timidly, boldly. And I want us to always be in the mode of asking, seeking, and knocking. Now, it doesn't have to be for you personal, but don't throw yourself out of the prayer chain either. But there's many people, situations, circumstances that we can pray for as well.